The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. This week, we're going to deal with a form of monster that I think many people encounter in their life. You almost have to encounter them if you want to own a motor vehicle in the United States, which is like car dealers. And it's a kind of funny profession because if you look at like sort of polling and but even just popular culture like the sort of the car dealer it has a very bad reputation it's the kind of notoriously sleazy operative i often think of the great coen brothers movie fargo where the the guy who tries to fake a kidnapping of his wife is a is a car dealer it has all the kind of negative traits that one associates with car dealership of kind of like Weasley deception and trying to fool his customers by putting in a lot of unnecessary expenses. But I mean, beyond this kind of like joking view of car dealers, though, they, they kind of are a really important part of the economy and also like perhaps the future, like in terms of issues of the environment. You know, one of the paths to decarbonization is through electrical vehicles. And there's a real question as to where car dealers fit into that vision. So I, I was thought about a lot of this because I read this excellent piece by Alex Salmon, a frequent guest on this program, who in Slate, where he went to a national conference for car dealers. And we'll, we'll talk about that. And I think one of the upshots of his piece is about the sort of reactionary political role that car dealers play in American society and how that could have an impact on environmental policy. So Alex, once again, welcome to the program. Hey, yeah, glad to be here as ever. So let's talk about the, the, this conference. Just the, You kind of went under, like I, I wouldn't say false pretenses, but you kind of had to go a little bit under the cover because they didn't want to give you a press pass, right? Yeah, I, I really tried to do it above board too. I, I emailed them like many months in advance saying that I wanted to cover the the conference, I got in touch with the press officer and they sort of struggling along for a while. Then they said that they were, they'd run out of press pa passes, which was just, just a totally implausible explanation given that this is a gigantic conference, you know, held at a convention center. And then I said, all right, you know, if, 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 you know, I can't get a press pass and I'll just buy a pass. And I, and I asked them which one I should buy. At that point, they stopped responding to me. So I bought a very expensive pass. I got the classic upsell in a lot of ways. I bought the very expensive pass. And then I found out that actually that wouldn't even get me into the the opening night party, which was a big, a big part of what I wanted to see. So I had to buy a second entry pass on 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 top of that. So it ended up being a not insignificant outlay. And yeah, so I, you know, I got the I got the dealer's badge and I and I got in there and and yeah, it just took a little doing. Now, I, I should mention that it wasn't totally underhanded because I, I believe Slate has some sort of car dealer connection. And so so you were like a legitimate part of the car dealer family. Yeah, but, that's uh, right. Yeah, the, the holding company that owns Slate also in uh, in their more profit-making side of the operation has purchased a bunch of car dealers. And those car dealers are actually also dues-paying members of this, of this group, this lobbying group, the National Automotive Dealers Association. So I reached out to them and they declined to be interviewed, but we do have, yeah, that was a, that was a funny disclosure <laughs> to have to make. We do have some weird and sort of secondary financial investment in this, in this operation, which I think, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so let's just describe the, the mood of the, of the conference that you saw. This is like a huge conference. Where was it held again? It was in Dallas. In Dallas. Okay. And uh, so I'm imagining like, you know, like, you know, a tie end hotel, you know, lots of luxury. And and this is a class of people. They're, they're pretty well to do, right? Like where, where do car dealers 
fit into the uh, the American economy? They're right there. They're so I think there 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 are a class of people that are sort of deceptively well off. There there was a really great analysis of of like the American super rich of the top 0.1% of American earners that was done out of UC Berkeley, I believe, by a handful of academics. And car dealers is one of the top five most common professions for for the top one point one percent of American earners. So we're talking about really substantial money. And there's another another sort of Census Bureau data breakdown that said that like car it was car dealers, gas station owners, and building contractors make up the majority of the hundred and forty thousand Americans who make about one point six million dollars a year or more. So like. Yeah, you know, this is a really, really remunerative operation. These people are very, very rich. And I think by any classification, you would have to say that they're part of the, the very, very top stratum of, of, of wealth in the United States. So not only in terms of the money they make, but how many of them there are out there, right? Like it's not right. like, you know, like I would imagine hedge fund managers make more money, but there's there's a lot fewer of them. And right. whereas the car dealers like in every state and 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 they're the wealthy part of the each like sort of local economy. They're the sort of gentry of the you know american hinterland right absolutely yeah 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 so i i want to emphasize this because i think it goes to sort of like long-standing arguments that people have had about you know like sort of trumpism and the republican party is it becoming more working class is it you know like there's a, a lot of appeal to the you know certainly non-college whites who have moved in that direction and i, I think non-college educated people more broadly have been attracted to the republican party and certainly trumpism in in for a variety of reasons but i think that has to be set aside against the fact that the real sort of backbone and structure of the Republican Party is this kind of, you know, like local gentry in the sort of heartland of America, these kind of like car dealers who are like, usually, you know, among the wealthiest people in their communities are the backbone of like sort of country club life and of the Republican Party. And, you know, it seems to me like, like ideologically have a lot of affinity for Trumpism, like that, that sort of like, you know, family business model and that, that, that sort of version of capitalism. And then they might be more critical of sort of, you know, the sort of elite corporate capital of like, you know, New York city or whatever, but within, you know, their ecosystem, they are, they are the top, right? Absolutely. Right. And, and it's like, Right. You could see how you could look at this demographic. You could squint hard at this sort of demographic on paper and say, well, there's something interesting here. This is like the class profile is like non-college educated whites. It's it it really squares exactly with what we would say is sort of core Trumpism, but exactly they're incredibly well off. These are businesses, these are family businesses, quote unquote, that are hand they're passed through generationally, but but it's not like they're small businesses, they're huge businesses. And and actually a lot of the Trump tax cuts were written exactly to advantage these kind of businesses. So these huge corporate entities that have been around for generations that are super profitable and allow them to be handed from one generation to the next of you know one non-college educated generation to the next with minimal tax burden. And then on top of that, you add the sort of like sleazy oleaginous businessman profile that you you know think of when you think of car dealers. And that also squares with Trump exactly. It's like the family business, you have every family member on the on the employee and then the sort of 
you know, the shady business dealings and, and the, the, the patriarch the, who's kind of a bit of a, you know, godfather figure looks after everyone, but is, you know, prizes loyalty above all. And, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it does. And has a like a value sort of social presentation values like you know like like looking the part of the successful businessman i mean i it, it i mean trump's coming out of sort of like real estate but he he does sort of fit the model of the car dealer definitely that, so so and like politically like that's exactly where they align right like like who 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 do these car dealers give their money to yeah yeah to just devout conservatives they i think this sort of like broad sweep analysis of their political givings has car dealers donating to republicans at about six to one I think you look in recent years, actually, it kind of skews even more conservative than that. And there, you know, there are years where there's more giving to Democrats because Democrats are in control. But you're looking at an incredibly reliable, incredibly conservative uh, affinity group. And that's that's on all levels of government. Right. That's like local, state, national. That's lobbying. That's that's political action committees. That's like they've the, the apparatus is huge and it's incredibly advanced and incredibly organized and it's overwhelmingly Republicans. I mean, it, it, and and not just Republicans, it's overwhelmingly conservative Republicans, especially those uh, who are willing to take up the mantle of, of, of this business interest. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's one party, certainly. Yeah, one party and, and very politically organized for very good reasons, which is that their whole economic model depends on them getting very specific kind of like carve outs and protections from the state. From like the state at all levels, like, you know, local governments to the the federal government, the all sorts of like sort of tax protections, but also even like legal protections. And, and so, I mean, in your piece, you go into some of the history of this. So, but and it, might, it might be worth just covering this a little bit, like, 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 when did these car dealers come together and what were they able to achieve through political organizing? Yeah. So yeah, the, the the bevy of protections is is almost like too long to list. It's it's incredible, and I think some of them are so ridiculous that that you know you you laugh when you see them. You almost can't believe that they're real. But they, they really it started. So car dealers as a, as like a as a function started basically at the beginning of the twentieth century, and very quickly they they were useful because car manufacturers didn't want to have to build out a national sales network, so you could you know let this third party group do this do the selling. But then yeah. car dealers very quickly found out that like if a car manufacturer wanted to open like a Ford dealership on the same block as the Ford dealer, they could undersell the car dealer and that would put them out of business. So from the very beginning, they were really active about lobbying, about getting legal protections. And I think the first official act of the NADA as an organization was in the run up to World War One. I, I think actually in 1917, so already underway, um, there was a lot of concern that car manufacturing facilities would be converted for wartime production and car dealers, car manufacturers, you know, probably fine with that. You still, you're getting paid by the federal government. You, you're going to make good money. Wartime economy is not bad for, you know, for that set, but for car dealers, it's horrible because you can't sell tanks and artillery and stuff to, you know, people in the hinterland or the American West or whatever. And so they go to, they go to Congress, these, these car dealers and basically start, start lobbying and they're able to get cars reclassified as a non-luxury good, which gets them makes them ineligible for wartime production conversion. And they get, I think, a 40% tax cut of the luxury tax, which was then being implemented on car sales as a pretty nascent and not widespread technology at that point. And from then, it's basically off to the races. It's just, you know, it's one thing after the next that all through the 30s and 40s, they're winning protections that say, you know, car manufacturers are prohibited by law from selling cars at all. They're prohibited from service. 
they're prohibited from, you know, opening up, you know, other car dealers are prohibited by law from opening up a competing store anywhere within a certain radius. It, you know, it's on and on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, no, no, and and, and they do receive a, a lot of protection, and 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 that's actually the basis of their business model in the sense that if they, you know, like if the government policy were designed to like maximize competition and you know serve the consumer to get the lowest possible prices for cars, you know, you wouldn't have this model, right? <laughs> you wouldn't create this system of middlemen, you know, who uh, you know initially came in for a particular reason, which is that you know, like when Henry Ford and these other companies were starting up, you know, they had a lot of capital outlay and they couldn't invest in dealerships. But you know, like after a while, that stopped being the 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 point. And but this is like an appendix that can not only continue to thrive, but like like really carved up most of it, the money that's coming in from this. And so like, just uh, if you're a car dealer, like, like, how are you making money? Like, 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 is it just from the sale of the car or where else is it from? Yeah, it's, it's most of the money comes from parts and service. And which is really interesting. I think that the, obviously, you know, if you've, you've purchased a car, you know, the experience of, you know, being quoted a price and then getting haggled and then the price is actually opaque and, you know, they can't do it for this number. And, and, you know, there are always these, you know, incredible add-ons where they have to massage your tires and put some, you know, invisible coat of something that's going to cost thousands of dollars. But on top of all that, the majority of the money comes from parts and service and, and car dealers, one of their, one of their many, many legal protections is that they, many of them are, 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 you know, protected by law and being the only place that can, or the only places that they can do warranty service for, for cars. And so they make a ton of money basically upselling both the car manufacturers themselves uh, and car owners on parts, on service, on warranty service, on extended warranties. It's a huge money maker, and so basically, you know, they're they're you know they're they're effectively robbing you blind in 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 these ancillary ways, but to a spectacular degree because the the top ten dealer dealership groups in the U.S. have annual revenues that exceed any any individual car maker. I mean, you know, the, the, we're not talking about nickels and dimes here. We're talking about <laughs> massive, massive, massive revenues. So that's the model. And that model, as I think we'll probably get into is, is now a little bit under, under threat from, for, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no I, I, I think, I think that's where we'll get to. Also, I, I want to like talk just before we get there, cause I, I think it's maybe get a little bit of color into this, like, like, so how was the mood at this like conference? Because on the one hand, like car dealers, you know, should be like really happy. Like they've had like, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, there were shortages and, but that drove up prices and there are people who had deferred buying a car and now there's like a great demand. And so they've actually had like, like a really good time lately. Like they've been making record profits, but, but what was the mood like at this event? Yeah, a really fascinating combination of things because, right, as you say, the last two years have been the best two years ever for this industry. They made, I think they there was one report that said profits were up 180% over 2019. So the COVID era has been incredibly favorable to them. So, you know, and and as you'd expect, the the celebration aspect of this of this meeting was was incredibly decadent, it, it, excessive, kind of almost beyond description, where you have it was like every every eight feet there were there were open bars. There were you know we had there were giant tubs full of ice and beer, and you had, I mean, in the, in the first night alone, there were at least there were like three or four live musical acts playing all at the same time in various parts of this venue, and then there were three or four DJs, and then there was Brad Paisley, and then there was 
a blackjack table and a saloon and you know they had dancers and stilt walkers i mean you know it's like it was like a you know like a parade effectively a, a private parade with you know sort of expensive blue chip musical talent on top of it and that kind of continued through the whole weekend it was just you know non-stop drinking not the, the private parties of, of incredible decadence and so all that on one hand and then on the other hand uh the sort of speakers and the programming and the sort of daytime stuff was also really stark and 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 you know you, there was this really palpable concern about where things were headed the sort of proclamations of impending doom and a lot of a lot of worry a lot of anxiety about the what the future holds yeah yeah no i mean you, you're and i'm gonna encourage i'll link to your piece that i would really strongly encourage listeners to read because it does describe this very decadent atmosphere and to me it does sort of call to mind you know some of what one reads in sort of court historians of france before the revolution you know like après moi le deluge you know like after us you know like it's all going to be torn away and and we got to you know like let the good times roll now because we're going to be in deep trouble so so, so what is this anxiety you know amid this you know decadence enjoying being on the top you know 1% of the 1%, what is this unease that was also at this event? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of two-pronged, but all of it centers on electric cars. And the the two major concerns of electric cars, one is that the electric car startups like Tesla, Lucid, Rivian have basically shunned the dealership model. And they, they've, they've you know, these groups have learned the thing that, you know, Ford and, and, and GM and these legacy car manufacturers know which is that it's actually cheaper and better for them to just sell directly to consumer. They, you know, they, they don't have to deal with this middleman. They don't have to worry about some unaffiliated group, you know, tarnishing their reputation, screwing up the sale, you know, ripping off the consumer and, and, and it's more profitable. So you have these new car companies, these new EV companies in particular have basically refused to play by the dealership model. And the direct to consumer sales thing is, you know, it is it is working. It's making inroads. The 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 CEO of Ford at a at an investor conference last year basically said like, let's get rid of these dealers. Let's do this direct to consumer thing. Put it all online, and then was forced, of course, to walk it back because of the power of this lobby. But that's the one encroaching problem is that there is an obvious workaround here that is technologically viable and and sort of on offer in a number of places in the country. And the other concern is that. Because electric cars are actually a better, I mean, at a very basic level, a better product. They need less upkeep. They need less repair. They have fewer parts. That means the warranty and service dollar is is disappearing because you don't need to be changing the oil all the time. You don't need to be fixing the, you know, the the transmission and everything else in the same way. And so that that sort of part of the business is 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 rapidly going away. And and that's true for EVs that are sold direct direct to consumer and for EVs that are sold by dealers. And so they don't want to put you in an electric car that's going to make them, you know, 25% as much money on service. And yet, here we go on the on the EV revolution. This is a core part of the, the climate strategy of the Biden administration, and, and it's it's happening. So those two threats, very acute, very concerning for this yeah. group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to be clear, like the 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 threat is that this is a better product for consumers and, and that there, there are alternative ways to sell it that are actually better for consumers. And, you know, one can sort of look at the car dealers as a kind of classic kind of like rent seeker, people, you know, who have managed to carve out a, a profitable niche through a regulatory regime that forces people to like, you know, use their service, but that is not like, you know, like economically rational at all. And this might be, I mean, 
it's interesting that like you know that sort of critique of rent seeking you know has become very popular coming out of you know neoclassical economics and the sort of neoliberal revolution but like i've rarely if ever seen it applied to car dealers like it, it's usually applied to like you know going after unions and going after you know like maybe that i don't know if you have any thoughts on that like yeah yeah you know? right it's like I, I mean you remember under the obama years they were saying that like 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 people who cut hair, you know, the, 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 the cartel of the, of the, of the certified haircut industry is like something that needs to be broken because it's excessively rent seeking. It's like, this is, this is the, you know, this is probably the biggest example of this. I mean, it, it's, yeah. this is a group that's incredibly, incredibly rich and influential and they're all over the country. And that's one of the things that makes them so formidable as a political entity. Is it like, you know, they're, they have these networks and they sponsor these little league teams and they buy local ad space in the paper and like, and yeah, and and they're extractive in an incredible way, and yet you don't really see the sort of fulsome critique of this that you saw of 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 you know barbers <laughs> and beauticians and stuff. And I think it's because there's genuine fear about what they can you know do to you politically, which has been proven over and over again. You know, if they if they set their sights on a political outcome, uh, they they'll get it. And that's why you know the the event that that I went to the 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 Nada show as they call it, like. The, the number of like presidential hopefuls who come to this event dating back to the 60s is astounding. The number of presidents who, who just finished their finished terms. It's like the Bushes, the Clintons, LBJ, Reagan, like the, the list of attendees is spectacular. And that's because they just amassed incredible political power. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Now, maybe a little bit speculative here, but like, do you think that they will be able to like kind of thwart or slow down or, you know, put substantial roadblocks? in the sort of electric car revolution that's coming. I I mean, just, I've noticed that like, you know, like electric cars seem to be taking off more in China than they do in the United States. And it's just like, like, like maybe like, you know, like a country that doesn't have this oligarchical group with a sort of stranglehold on politics has some advantages, like just on that one particular issue. Right. I think think it's a really good point and a really great comparison to make. I think that like, there, there are a group of sort of like center left, what we would say like quasi neoliberal, you know, neoliberal supportive of the of the Biden IRA climate strategy, but sort of still, you know, market enthusiasts who would say like, oh, these car dealers are going to lose, they're going to get crushed, this technology is better, the market prefers it, we also made all these incentives to, uh, to make sure the market, you know, uh, prefers it. And I, I just don't think you can say that. I don't think you can say like, oh, it's going to sort itself out because they're going to get crushed. They, if that were the case, they would have gotten crushed a long time ago. And and I think that like, you know, the comparison to China is really apt. There was a, a survey that was done by the Sierra Club a couple of weeks ago, actually, that found that two thirds of car dealerships had no electric vehicles on offer. And half of those said that they would not be offering electric vehicles under any circumstances. And so, you know, like they're doing it. It's it, the, the question is, is it going to just slow down the process, you know, such that it, it'll happen eventually? Will they be able to thwart it entirely? They might. I, I think it's just something you have to really take seriously. And we, we've already seen that, like, there is evidence of this playing a role. This is this is a important choke point in this in this in this strategy. And, uh, and I think you would be foolish not to take it seriously. I think it, you know, we've already seen signs of it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I mean, I think it gets to sort of like larger issues 
of problems that the United States will have in sort of, you know, an adaption mitigation strategy towards climate is just that in America, there's so many veto points and there's so many powerful interest groups that can like, you know, prevent things, you know, like building denser cities, <laughs> you know, and, and and moving towards electric vehicles. I mean, I, I think this is like a kind of, you know, something people need to be thinking about. Now, there's an argument you made against your piece, and I wanted to mention it. I noticed that Matt Stoller, who is a director of research at the American Economics Liberty Project, made some objections to your piece, and I, I wanted to raise them. Do, do you want to like say what he had issues with? Yeah, I think that Matt's sort of, the crux of Matt's sort of objection or contention is that like, this is mostly an aesthetic objection as opposed to a substantive one that like, people don't like car dealers or that, you know, my sort of gloss on this was excessively negative because car dealers are not Ivy League educated, you know, sort of like meritocratic elites. They're elites of a different persuasion. They sort of like engage in a different level of, I guess, like consumerism of 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 sort of elite projection or whatever. And that that right, this is basically an aesthetic revulsion as opposed to a, an economic one. And that actually this institution is useful because it keeps big car companies from monopolizing the sales product or monopolizing us this this market which is you know massive and incredibly important in the united states where we don't really have a functional public transit and therefore that you know the, the car dealers are actually sort of like misunderstood and should be a, a, a thriving and important class to in in a sort of non-monopolized economy yeah yeah and i i should mention that stoller you know who's a kind of influential voice in a variety of policy debates is coming out of the kind of sort of, you know, anti-monopoly populism that really extols sort of like the mom and pop model, the sort of, you know, and sees the the role of the state as to try to like, you know, disperse capital as broadly across the society as well. And from that point of view, like, you know, like a sort of electric car revolution that leads to, you know, Ford, GM, Tesla selling their own cars means a more sort of concentrated monopoly form. Uh, I mean, one sees this in like, you know, many sort of debates, you know, like like in sort of banking sector, is, is the goal to break up the banks or is it, you know, like you, you can have, you know, big centralized banks, you just have to regulate them more. And in some ways it's kind of, I, I think for a certain more socialistic wing of the left, like, you know, like bigness per se is not a problem because if you, if you have like big corporations, they're actually like easier to unionize. They're easier to regulate. They're easier to kind of, you know, get on board with democratic policies. So, so yeah, I mean, where, where do you think this sort of shakes down? Like, do you, do you, in terms of this, I feel like this is a genuine dispute on the left. Yeah, it's interesting. I, 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 you know, I obviously have a lot of thoughts about this. One is that I, I think that that sort of misapprehends the nature of of car dealers in their current form, which is, you know, in the, in the 30s, they they made a real concerted effort to project themselves as like mom and pop, small businesses, like coming out of the progressive era, where these sorts of values were were really at the at the height of the American business model, and. And they already weren't that. They already were really, you know, were largely monopolized themselves, very large business entities that were owned by, you know, families and then and then passed on and, and continued to grow and grow. And I think that at a basic level, I think you have to sort of ex sort of accept that that's the case because it it's most certainly is. And then I think that on a political level, you know, even even if you were to say, okay, in an I in my sort of idealized economy, we would have 
groups like this that prevent, you know, sort of just a handful of large companies lapping up an entire sector. That would all be one thing. But I think you have to look at the sector as it actually is, which is that it's it's a you know incredibly politically active, as we've been talking about, an incredibly politically active conservative uh, organization that opposes all the other things that someone who, you know, would wants a, you know, an anti-monopolized economy to exist, they oppose all of those things. And so it's not just a sort of neutral existence that they lead. It's it's a, an incredibly politically malevolent one if you're someone who cares about these things you care about broadly, and if you're on the left in general about any of this stuff. And so I think that, you know, that's the third thing I would say is that also they're incredibly profoundly and universally disliked. I mean, <laughs> if you're going to make a, pol- a mass politics this is like one of the best places you could start, you know, beyond like saying you don't like the DMV. It's like this group is is one of the most reviled and loathed in any anywhere in American society and for good reason. And so if you're trying to put together a, a sort of mass political project, I don't think you start by saying car dealers are in and other stuff is out. I think if you're going to draw a line, it's pretty hard to see any line that doesn't have car dealers on the other side of it. So that's kind of my feeling on some of this <laughs> yeah yeah no no i think that's right and i, I think in, in your piece as well like i think one of the the points that you make is the kind of like rent seeking aspect of this like it's not like this is like not like mom and pop you know selling to the local neighborhood this is mom and pop you know using state and federal governments to like you know amass great wealth jack up prices and then pass on their their money to their squalid children so, so, so I, don't, I just don't see like you know like 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 you know the, the mom and pop thing to me like is not very convincing considering you know who mom and pop actually are and and how they actually make their money like it's it's but but he does i mean i i think stoller's critique does show the sort of ideological success that they've had, like, like not just like political success, but they have like, you know, like taken this, like, you know, I would say absurd and fictional ma and pop model and like, you know, like convinced people who should know better that this is what reality is. Totally. I mean, there's so many sort of like fantastical elements to this. And I think that you know, even the even the fact like the, you know, that the acronym is NADA and it's like this, you know, it's nothing, but it's this incredibly forceful political operation that the NADA pack and the NADA show, like it feels like it's, out, it's like something out of, straight out of pinch in. It's like the whole thing is, is you know, it's so, so beyond fantastical in some ways. And that's a big part of that projection, right? It's like it's they're saying that they're this small little, you know, nothing. And, and, and in fact, they are this incredibly organized, massive apparatus industry and. Yeah, I think that that tells you a lot, actually, a lot about how Republican politics works when it's when it's working. So, yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. I, I, I forgot that the this organization is called NADA. And and maybe that's the a note to kind of end on. I will quote from Ernest Hemingway's great story, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. Our NADA, who art in NADA, NADA by, be thy name, thy kingdom NADA, thy will be NADA, in NADA as it is in NADA. His, his uh, use of the uh, the Spanish word for nothingness mixed in with the Lord's Prayer. And uh, this is uh, perhaps the demon, demonic prayer that one should offer this uh, this really wretched organization. So uh, <laughs> thank you, Alex, for being on. It was a very productive conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That was great. 